I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we again just are grateful for what you have revealed to us of your ways and of your person. And I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would take comfort, Lord, in the things that you have revealed and that we would live, Lord, true to you by the enabling of your spirit. We thank you, God, that you have um, made this world, you are Lord over it, And everything is functioning on your timetable. And we would, Lord, just pray that that you would grant us um, your peace as we give to you in prayer and supplication every request with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week um, we started looking at um, the theme of the Lord's second coming future events. I don't plan on spending a lot of time on this, um, but it would be very easy to. As I said, it's one of the most dominant themes in Scripture, at least in the New Testament, of the Lord's um, second coming. We looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is one of the two principal passages in the New Testament that clearly speaks to the rapture of God's people, that there will come a time when The Lord, in a moment of time, will take out of this world all of those who are His. The bride of Christ will be removed, the church of Jesus removed. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that He will come in the air and and we will be caught up to meet Him in the air. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the other passage that speaks about that being caught up. There are many passages that speak about an imminent return. Um, But these are the two that principally speak about the rapture or the being caught up in air. Just at the front end of this, some folks will will object to the doctrine of the rapture because they say it's a word that is not found in the New Testament. And that is true and and not true. Um, It depends on which language you're talking about. Um, It is true that the English word for rapture is not found in the New Testament. But the word rapture is actually a a Latin translation of the Greek word for caught up. 
It's rapturo in the, in the Latin. And so we've just simply Englishized the Latin word. But it's a good translation for the Greek word to be caught up to meet him in the air. Others would say, well, there's no precedent in Scripture for a rapture. Well, that's not entirely true either. Obviously, the most um, um, prominent rapture would be the rapture of Jesus, where he was translated after his resurrection from the earth into heaven as his disciples looked on. He was caught up and taken to heaven. But there are numerous other raptures in Scripture. Enoch was raptured and taken up to be with the Lord. He walked with God and was no more, the Bible says. Elisha was also caught up to be with the Lord. We know that Jesus was caught up to be with the Lord. We know that Paul says he had his own experience where he himself was caught up to be with the Lord in heaven. He said, I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body, but he was in the presence of God in heaven. We know that the two witnesses of Revelation will be caught up to be with the Lord. We know that Philip, though not taken to heaven, he was caught up to be from one place to another. God raptured him and put him in a different location. So all told, there are seven raptures in Scripture. And so there is a lot of biblical precedent for the removal of God's people from one place to another as he would choose to do so. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the subject is the resurrection of believer and unbeliever. All are going to be raised. Not at the same time. 1 1 Thessalonians already spoke to that. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to it. There is going to be two resurrections. There will first be a resurrection of all of those who were saved. The believers in Christ. At the end of the, of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be another resurrection, and that will be of all of those who died not saved, not having placed their faith in Christ, and they will be raised to judgment. So the scripture speaks about a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death. And so all will be raised. What the Old Testament never makes mention of is the rapture of the church. Because the church is not made mention of in the Old Testament. It is a mystery that had not yet been revealed. That God would take Jew and Gentile and and bring them together to form one body, a new body, the body of Christ. And so Paul now speaks of this where he says here in 1 Corinthians 1550, first, everybody is going to be um, putting on the imperishable that the perishable cannot inherit the, the kingdom of God. So we must put on the imperishable. The body is going to be equipped, reconstituted to fit it for eternity with God in heaven. But then this mystery, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. Now again, mystery doesn't mean hard to understand. When Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about something that was not previously revealed. There is nothing in the Old Testament about this. There is nothing in the Gospels about this. This is the first time that it is being mentioned, the rapture of the church. I tell you a mystery. We, so again, it speaks of the imminency of this doctrine. It is not a doctrine of immediacy. 
that it could that the rapture of the church could take place immediately, but it is a doctrine of imminency, meaning that it could take place at any time. And whenever Paul makes reference to this event, he consistently uses the words we, us, saying that he fully expected it could happen in his own lifetime. We shall not all sleep. A euphemism for die. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. We shall all put on the imperishable. When will that happen? How quickly? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Apparently, the Greek here would indicate that this is the smallest measurement of time that there is. Shorter than a second. It, 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 is, it is almost indescribably too small to talk about. That is just, it is, it is quicker than a snap of the fingers. The time it takes for light to reflect off of the eye. In the twinkling of an eye. Faster than, than the speed of light. We shall be changed. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So this is speaking of the rapture, and it's saying it will happen quickly beyond anything. We, will, it, we won't even be able to say in our own experience, something's happening. By the time we have the thought, something has happened, it's over. We will be with the Lord in glory. You'll be mid-sentence. And you'll be with the Lord in glory, looking around going, how did that just happen? You won't even have the sensation that it's taking place. It'll be over before you have that sensation. That's what the Lord's saying here. That's kind of exciting. So you won't even be like on a roller coaster where you're losing your stomach. You won't even have that sensation. It'll just be done. Then he says, at the last trumpet. Now, that's what can be a bit problematic because he's giving now the time. He spoke about how quickly it will happen. And now he's saying something to to the speaking to when it will happen. And because he says last trumpet and because we all know our Bible so well because we're Bible church, we immediately think of the seven trumpets of the book of Revelation. Right. And so we go, well, that's the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. Well, the trumpets are in Revelation, I think it's six through, and it begins in chapter eight. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. In chapter eight are when the seven trumpets begin. And the seventh trumpet is in chapter 11. So is this last trumpet the same trumpet of the last of the seven in Revelation? If it is, that would mean we are going through at least half of the tribulation if not all of it, depending on where you place that seventh trumpet. The mid-trib people, mid-tribulational rapture folks, say that seventh trumpet takes place in the middle of the tribulation. The post-tribulational people say that seventh trumpet takes place at the end of the tribulation. Pre-tribulational people like myself say, it doesn't matter when that seventh trumpet takes place, because that's not this trumpet. Now, why isn't it? Well, listen to these remarks. And this sounds a bit hard, uh, so I can read it and not be faulted for it. The most important point in the entire entire mid-tribulational argument 
is the identification of the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, 52 with the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11. So the whole theory of mid-tribulationalism hangs on is the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, 52 the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11. The scriptures are full of references to trumpets, as any concordance will illustrate. To pick out all of these references, to, to pick out of all of these references, two unrelated trumpets and demand their identification because of the word last is certainly arbitrary. Others with no conviction relative to pre-tribulationalism versus mid-tribulationalism reject the identification. Ellicott states, for instance, there is no sufficient ground for supposing that there, that there is here in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, any reference to the seventh trumpet of Revelation. The trumpets of Revelation are entirely different from any other series of trumpets in Scripture. They are, the trumpets of Revelation, trumpets that are sounded by angels. The trumpet at the rapture is the trump of God. The trumpets of Revelation are all connected with divine judgment upon sin and unbelief. The trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is a call to the elect, an act of grace, a command for the dead to rise. So it is not a trumpet of judgment, it is a trumpet of grace. The most damaging fact in the whole argument, however, is that the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 is not the last trumpet of Scripture. Did you know that? It's not. Look with me now to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. This passage is speaking about the tribulation. We'll look at this in more depth another time. But Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is the end of the seven years of tribulation. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the skies. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. For he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That is not one of the seven trumpets of Revelation. This happens after those seven trumpets. So the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 is earlier than this event. This is the last trumpet of Scripture. And so again, it's not even anything related to the seven trumpets of Revelation 8 through 11. So all that to say, when Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, the last trumpet, He's not speaking about the last trumpet that will ever be blown. He's speaking about the last trumpet for us. It is our calling. It is is his calling upon the church. It is more of a military um, metaphor than anything, which Paul was very fond of military metaphors. Philippians is full of them, for example. 
where it's saying, as, a, as there will be a trumpet in the morning saying, strike tents, get ready to move. There'll be another trump later on that says, set out and let's go. And so it's, it's all in reference to the church here. There is nothing in this passage that forces us to jump to Revelation. In fact, Revelation hadn't even been written when Paul makes reference here to the last trumpet. So hopefully you can put it to rest. Paul is not saying that this is the trumpets of Revelation. He's not saying this is mid-tribulation. He's not even speaking to that. He's saying that it will happen, something that we will hear, probably not even have time to comprehend what you're hearing, and you will be in the presence of God. The point being, there is going to be a rapture of the church, and it is going to happen very suddenly. And then he, he moves back to talking about all of this, is the purpose of this rapture is the same as the purpose of the resurrection. And that is to reconstitute the body to make us fit for an eternity with God. Verse 53, the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. And then when it's all said and done, the conclusion that we can draw from the truth of the rapture and the truth of the resurrection is that death, though it is the enemy of God, and it is the final battle for the believer unless he is raptured, death has been dealt with either by resurrection or rapture. Jesus has conquered it. Death, verse 54 at the end, is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Rhetorical questions. And the inference is there is no victory. There is no sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not anything trivial. And it's not a process that any of us wants to go through. But it is the process, short of the rapture, which we will go through in order to bring us into the presence of God. Bonhoeffer spoke of it as being the last stop on the train before we enter into glory. He himself died with great peace um, because he was so sure that it is a victory that has already been won. And it is not something that should panic us and hold us in its grip because it has lost its grip. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. I am so encouraged by the many friends that I have watched die over the years at peace with God. And how, though the body is struggling, it was so, so apparent that their souls were at rest. And they were looking forward to being with the Lord. All of us perhaps have had the experience, and if we haven't yet, I imagine that we will, of being at the bedside of someone who is about to slip into glory and they're struggling on the one hand because they don't want to leave family behind. But on the other hand, as a believer, they are looking forward to that moment of being with the Lord and and standing at their bedside and praying with them and saying, it's okay. 
you can go home. We'll be all right. And just seeing them in that very moment slip into the presence of God at peace. I'm telling you, there is nothing like it. I've seen it happen several times. And it's, it's what the Lord is saying here. Death has lost its power. It has lost its sting. It has lost its victory. And the doctrine of the rapture and the doctrine of the resurrection should point us to that and encourage us with it. I believe it's a grace that we don't receive until we have to have it. And so right now we can think, well, I'm not so sure how I would face that. And we can't because we don't have that grace now. But I do believe that if God is calling us home, he will give us the grace to die well, to die at peace and looking forward to being with him. One of the, again, I made note of it last week, but one of the criticisms of the doctrine of the rapture of the church is that it can breed complacency and a, and a, a lack of love for the people in this world and, and an unconcern toward all we want is to be gone. That it's been accused of being a doctrine of escapism that pulls people away from impacting their world as God would have them to do. I have no doubt that that has been true on an individual basis. But it is the exact opposite of what should happen. If we were to live every day in the conviction that this is the day that the Lord could come for us, to bring us home, to rapture the church, it should motivate us to be anything other than complacent and indifferent. And that's why verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If we think the rapture motivates anything other than this, we do not understand the rapture or we are not applying it correctly. A correct application of the removal of the church from the earth should result in what Paul is saying here. An immovable fortitude type of attitude where we are not going to be moved. We're not going to be pushed around by the world. We can stand and not fear death because we know that we will be with the Lord. We can stand and not give up because we know that in any moment the Lord could take us home to be with himself steadfast, immovable. And the last thing that's going to happen is that we will be passive and uninvolved in the affairs of this world. We will be people who will vote. We will be people who will raise our voices in protest. We will be people who serve, who work, who are behind the scenes doing things that nobody else sees, doing the work of God, because we believe at any moment we could be taken home to be with the Lord. And then who's going to speak? This may be the last chance. Our speaking may be the last chance that someone would have to hear concerning Christ, to be served and loved in the name of Jesus. So it does not breed in itself. The doctrine of the rapture of the church does not breed a mentality of quitting, of vacating, and of retiring. The rapture is, the, is reason for involvement, And for perseverance, not withdrawal, not defeat, and not passivity. 
Nothing could be clearer in God's Word. And this is just one of the many passages that speak to the practical effect that the doctrine of the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church should have upon the believer. Be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord because he could come at any moment. Now I want us to go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul speaks about the day of the Lord. Tom was speaking about the day of the Lord this morning in in Sunday school class, the adult Sunday school class. This paragraph here begins with an interesting Greek construction. We translate it now. In the Greek, it's two words, peri day. And it always signifies a change of subject. In fact, many times it signifies a completely different subject, absolutely unrelated to the first. A change of subject. So in the previous paragraph, Paul was talking about the translation, the rapture of the church to heaven. I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to grieve as the rest who do not have hope. But the Lord is going to come. He will descend, verse 16 of chapter 4, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Now, different subject. But it still relates to the end times. But it is not about the rapture. Now, as to times and epochs, so he's dealing with future times, future events. He says, let's talk about that for a little bit. But he has changed subjects from the rapture. You have no need of anything to be written to you, which is amazing because Paul, of all the churches that he started, he was probably at Thessalonica the shortest amount of time. Acts says he was there only three Sabbaths. So that was two weeks in a day that Paul was with these people. And presumably in that very short period of time, he covered a lot of doctrine and theology. And one of the things he talked about with them was the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. I find that amazing. That in Paul's mind, this is such an important truth. That when new believers came to Christ, and Paul knew he would have a very short time with them, he felt one of the essential things he needed to talk about was the second coming of Jesus. And that's why he can say here, I don't need to talk to you about this. Because he already had. And, and again, amazing. But one of the reasons it seems that Paul was motivated to do that is because he knew these Thessalonians were already, as brand new believers, experiencing persecution. And so they needed to have some understanding that persecution is to be expected, and this is what you can expect beyond your, your experience of persecution in times. So verse 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 
Now, the day of the Lord is actually a very common Old Testament um, expression. The exact phrase, day of the Lord, is used 20 times in the Old Testament. That little minor prophet of Joel uses it five times just by himself. And then the, 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 the related expression um, in that day occurs about a hundred times. And so it is very common in the Old Testament. There are some things that are clear about this. It is not a 24-hour period. It is consistently in the Old Testament a period of judgment coming upon those who have turned away from the Lord. It involves more than a day. It involves judgment. And, and in the New Testament, we find it goes right through the millennial reign of Christ and up to the time of the destruction of this earth with, with fire by the Lord. Look, just hold your finger here and go over to Second Peter and chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. In verse 3, Peter says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. So when the last days begins is a different question from when does the day of the Lord begin. The day of the Lord is in the last days. But the day of the Lord, but the last days actually start before the day of the Lord does. And so he, he goes on to describe the last days, people following after their own lust. And then he, says, he brings in the day of the Lord, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, a time of judgment, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. That is not the tribulation. This is after the tribulation, after the millennial reign of Christ. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? So this is a very interesting passage. The day of the Lord will happen at that time when the scripture says after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, God will destroy this earth and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And that would be the culmination event, not the beginning event, but the concluding event of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, according to Paul, will begin way before this back during the tribulation. And it will go through the tribulation, through the thousand-year reign of Christ, and all the way up to the destruction of the present earth that we are living in. So, even though that aspect of the day of the Lord is at least a thousand years away, Paul says, what kind of people ought we to be in view of that coming judgment? So it ought to, again, motivate purity, holy living, being ready, anticipating this event. So just because we don't go through the day of the Lord doesn't mean that the day of the Lord shouldn't have impact upon us, in other words. Okay, so now back to 1 Thessalonians 5. 
For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Same thing Peter says. But again, Paul's talking about the front end of this time. Peter's talking about the back end of this time. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. There is no time of peace and safety during the seven-year tribulation. Go back and read Revelation. One of the things that happens in the first three and a half years, which is the time of greatest peace, is a fourth of mankind is destroyed. In the first three and a half years. The Antichrist will be ruling during that time. Every person is going to have a mark on their hand or their forehead that will prevent them from buying or selling anything unless they have that mark. It is not going to be a pleasant time. There is going to be great conflict. There is going to be great destruction. Though it is not nearly as bad as the second half of the tribulation, it is not by any stretch a time of peace and safety. This time of peace and safety precedes the starting of the tribulation. And Paul says it is during a time of peace and safety that this event of the day of the Lord will will finally take place. The day of the Lord will break in to that peace and safety and it will start. There are reasons why throughout history, political leaders, especially recent history, have tried to um, make world events seem less significant than what they are because they don't want to panic populations and it's hard to control panic. And so often our governments will understate the nature of a problem and they end up just flat out lying to us. Because they, they aren't prepared to face, have us face the truth and have a response that they can't control. So we have a president now that won't use the words radical Islamic terrorist. Now, we can all debate why that is. But giving him some benefit of the doubt, which is very difficult for me, It may be that he is in a long line of presidents and world leaders who have wanted to understate problems so as not to bring about panic and a lack of control. Whatever his motivation would be, we are living in a time when world leaders typically say, you have nothing to worry about. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to continue the way it is. Just as Peter said, while people are saying, where is the coming of the Lord? Everything continues just as it had before. Our world leaders propagate that kind of folly. And when people are saying, peace and safety, the day of the Lord is going to come. But understand, the day of the Lord is not the rapture. He's talking about two different events. There is no indication 
of when the rapture will take place. There is not a single preceding event that Scripture says has to happen before the rapture. That helps to understand why Paul consistently, when he makes reference to this event, uses the words we, us, because Paul felt in his day the rapture could take place. But when it comes to the day of the Lord, that changes. Because this is not something we go through. It is something they go through. And there are specific indicators of when it has begun. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is going to list many of those. We'll get to those another time. But look here. While they are saying, since it's not something that God's going to bring upon the church, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with, chi- with child, and they shall not escape. Now some would say, yeah, this is all the tribulation, And he is simply saying that during the tribulation, God keeps Christians safe. You can't read Revelation, in my opinion, and come to that conclusion. If Revelation speaks of anything, it speaks of the millions of martyrs during that time. Christians are being slaughtered during the time of the Great Tribulation. They are not being kept safe. So much so that the martyrs are standing before the throne of God saying, how much longer is this going to take place? It is a time of great bloodshed, and Christians are not being exempted from that time during the tribulation. So this is, they shall not escape, speaking the day of the Lord. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Now he's not saying here, in the fear of God's judgment upon you, clean up your acts. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in the fear of God's judgment upon them, (laughs) clean up your acts. There is nothing here where Paul is saying, you should be afraid of what you are about to go through. He's saying, you're not going to go through this. This is not for us. This is for them. But it still should motivate you to not live a lethargic, spiritually apathetic life. This is motivation not to live that way. I was one of those kids that when my dad was spanking one of my brothers, I got motivated. I didn't often need a spanking after I saw my brother get spanked. That seems to be a little bit what he's talking about here. You are not people who are going to experience this. This is the wrath of God upon the earth, the judgment of God. We are not destined for that, he's about to say. But he's not saying that should breed apathy, indifference, or lethargy. Far from it. Put on. You are people who, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. The day of the Lord is a time of wrath. 
at least the front end of it. For our obtaining salvation, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. On what basis? That we're going to go through the tribulation? No. On the basis that we're not going to go through the tribulation. It is an awful time, a time of distress like this world has never seen, nor will ever see again, Jesus says in the Gospels. But it's not a time for the church of Jesus Christ. Will there be people coming to faith after the rapture? Yes, that's why I made reference to Christians being persecuted and martyred. Probably best not to refer to them as Christians because that's a term the New Testament reserves for the body of Christ. But they will be saved. And the scripture calls them saints. And when they die, they go to be in the presence of God. But the body of Christ, from what Paul's saying here, will be taken out before the day of the Lord begins. It's an awful time. It's not a time, not, and not a sequence of events that cause us, should cause us to gloat or to be passive. Feel very passionate about this because it, it troubles me when a brother in Christ will say, says to me, I cannot believe in the rapture because of how I see that doctrine making Christians complacent and indifferent. That troubles me because when I read God's word over and over again, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in particular the rapture of the church, should have the exact opposite impact upon the body of Christ. It is true, God has not destined us for wrath. Praise God. And if we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, that should motivate us not to want to see any person experience the wrath of God. And while we have the time to not sleep, but be those who are in the day, of the day, Eyes awoke open, hearts and minds alert, and using every opportunity that God gives us to speak concerning Christ. There is a judgment coming. People don't want to hear it. It's not politically correct. But people's eternal destinies are at stake. It's time for people to be bold and courageous and to say what needs to be said. This life is not all there is. There is a judgment coming, and every one of us will stand before him. And either we will stand on the merits of Jesus Christ, or we will stand on our own merits. And what a fearsome thing that would be for a sinner to stand before a holy God at the throne of God's judgment. It is a doctrine of hope, And it is a doctrine that should motivate us to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. A doctrine that should motivate us not to sleep, not to carouse, not to live for our passions and for our lust. I just thought, thinking about it again on the way over this morning. Patsy and I were listening, we listened to a radio program sometimes on the drive over from Comfort, Christian Testimonies. And the one today was about a young couple. Um, the, the wife um, almost died 
um, through some complications through routine surgery and would have left three young children behind. And the husband talked about how he had basically just been playing at his Christian life until the doctor said, she's probably not going to live through this morning. And he says, in a very brief amount of time, he grew up. What he was trying to say is, as the testimony went on is that he, he got serious about his relationship with Jesus and the responsibility that he had toward his family and toward his wife. And he started living out his faith. All of us can relate to that kind of testimony. That it takes the death of a loved one or the news of cancer or the threat of some kind of financial crisis to wake us up and make us serious. Shouldn't be. If we have everything in the world going for us and not a problem that we can even think coming on the horizon, it should be enough to know the rapture could take place at any time to motivate us to godly living and making most of the brief time that we have on this earth. I'll close us in prayer.